Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Hey, We've Al. Been talking for like 10 it, minutes, happens. it happens. There's no natural way. There's no natural way to start an episode like this. No, especially a part twoer. Exactly. Yeah, but we are here to do part two of the Happy Valley set, and you know, get out of that mm-hmm. realm, and we're gonna, you know, do some deep dives into some people who aren't white colonizers, and I think that that's gonna be really fun. Hooray. There were so many people born in this year, Al. Oh my god, I know. Babies on babies on babies. So many. And I was confused, too, because I'm like, it's not baby boomer time. What is going on? This was the baby you conceived on your wedding night before you went to Normandy. Mm. Rough. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. No one was born in this story in 1941, but we figured since that's the year that we're opening and the year that this trial takes place, we would tell you what happened. So, Nathan, go Mm -hmm. ahead with it. So, first off, we've got all Puerto Ricans are becoming U.S. citizens. Still not a state, though. Sad. <laughs> but they're citizens. FDR, in that same country, he's sworn in for a third time. I think the only president to do so, if I'm right, right? Yep. He's only, the only one, one who's only done one it. will ever, too. He's done it three. Mm-hmm. Uh, plutonium. No, he got elected is... to four. He got inaugurated into four, and then he died shortly after. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. And then they passed an amendment that said that don't we're not doing that again. Plutonium is discovered. That's not good. Uh, Bulgaria and Yugoslavia join the Axis powers. That's also not good. Citizen Kane premieres in New York City. Yeah, that's like going to cause some trouble down the line with film bros everywhere. But people <laughs> liked it then. Fights. Yes. Uh, one of one of my favorite pianists, Duke Ellington, writes Take the A-Train. This was a huge year for animation, too. Um, Dumbo was released, despite Disney animators striking, which I think you know, happens a, a couple times. Um, but this was like a big, big strike that they did. Tom and Jerry first appear. Hayao Miyazaki is born. So like I said, big, big year for animation. Um, and then in Births, We've got Faye Dunaway, Martha Stewart, Bernie Sanders, Sergio Mendes, Darlene Love, George, Darlene Love. Down, but I don't know who that. No, Sergio Darlene, Mendes. Oh, Sergio Mendes is this really, really good jazz drummer um, from I want to say Brazil, and I'm gonna look it up right now. <laughs> yes, Brazilian musician. Um, you've definitely heard one of his songs somewhere in a Will movie. You, like, throw- Three famous seconds in the podcast. I will do it right now. Here's a one of the best Sergio Mendes songs that I could find. So that's that. That's him. Uh, Darlene Love, great singers. I just got a bunch of singers right now and uh, musicians. So Darlene Love, George Clinton, Mama Cass Elliot, Wilson Pickett, Ronald Isley. Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, Chick Corea, who 
is another one of my favorite pianists and was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Um, wow. And our former Fatal Fortune, Otis Redding. They were all born in 1941. Going on a little bit more, um, just I th- thought these were really incredible parallels of uh, revolutionary Pan-Africanist Kwame Ture, um, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. He's born in Trinidad and Tobago. And then that same yeah, I, year, yeah. Emmett Till is born. Like, sad. Really sad. Really, really sad. And going on to more sad things that happened in this year, James Joyce, Lou Gehrig, and Marcus Garvey all pass away. But unfortunately, a lot of other people die that are innocent. 6,000 Jewish people, notably. That's like when the Nazis are starting to gas people a lot. 1941 was a, a big year for the Nazis doing a lot of horrible battles and atrocious shit. Who was awarded a Nobel Prize? I saw that. No, there's there. a, no one got any Nobel Prizes. Nobel oh, prizes nobody. People, they said, yo, this year sucks. No one gets any prizes. I wonder if Nobel Prizes come with money. Because <laughs> I'm must. like, what am I going to do with a medal? They must. Well, and if, they if, have to. if not money, it's definitely notoriety, and that will get you money eventually. So it definitely is like a yeah. means to that. So let's just jump right back into the story where we left off last time is that the Earl of Errol has been murdered. They have found him at a crossroads at three in the morning, not ten minutes after he left his lava, Diana Caldwell's house, dead in the front seat of his Buick. So basically a bunch of people show up and they think that this was just like a regular car crash. So they really tamper with the scene. Like a bunch of people walk all over it so you can't like distinguish what footprints are from the perp versus all the people who showed up. The coroner shows up, and he says, oh, take the body out the car so I can examine it more, but then he realizes it's early, and he's like, oh my god, I just totally fucked this up. And apparently that's something he goes to his grave, like, being like, why did I do that? He didn't realize who the person was, and a lot of people, because they don't realize it's, you know, one of the most famous people in Kenya at the time, they're just messing it up. They also lost a lot of the evidence... So we couldn't even, like, retest some of the stuff, like, found in the car today. Like, they take the car away and they repair it. So even with our new forensics, you can't really, like, find... We can't solve this mystery, which is upsetting. But anyway, they try to keep this a secret once they realize it's the Earl. And they call their friends and they're like, oh, Joss had a car accident and he broke his neck, not Joss has been shot. So Alice DeJonzi, who we mentioned in the last episode, and Gladys, mayor of Nairobi, who we also mentioned in the last episode, they've already arrived at the mortuary and Alice lays a branch on his body and kisses him on the lips and says, you're mine forever, which is really gross and everyone thinks it's really gross. Um, And then Gladys identifies the body for them. And they didn't let Broughton in. Like, he goes to the police station, but they don't let him in. But they take the handkerchief that Diana had given him, and they put that on the body. And I'm like, why would he do that? Why would... Yeah. So we only really have two suspects. We've got two suspects that we've really gone into. And we'll start with the one who I think is the less likely of the two perpetrators. Watch me, like, someday, like do ayahuasca and totally have an epiphany about exactly what happened be like i've solved the mystery and it's actually her like i can see that happening but we don't know anyway alice who we mentioned in the last episode she was born alice silverthorne and she is cuckoo for cocoa puffs she was born in buffalo new york in 1899 but she spent most of her childhood growing up in chicago society Alice's mother died when she was eight years old, and I think that part of this loss is what makes her such a distant mother herself. 
there are two theories about her mom's cause of death. One of them being that she had tuberculosis and the second being that her husband locked her out overnight. And I just found out that like, it's so cold in parts of the Midwest, you have to wear goggles to go outside. So being locked out overnight, like you're a dead man. So contrary to his widow or his first wife's wishes, he remarries really quickly and goes on to have five more children. But uh, it's only confirmed that one of them lived to adulthood. Her father was an alcoholic, and eventually he lost custody of Alice, and an uncle sent her to a boarding school in Washington, D.C., and that's really all I can find out about her education. We don't even know the school. Some speculate that the actual reason Alice's father lost custody is that he was having a sexual relationship with her, but, you know, her biographer is a journalist at the time, and people analyzing it in the future, like, there's a very big split on whether or not this was the case. But uh, nevertheless, at another point in her teenage years, her father actually gets custody back, and they live on the French Riviera together, and um, he lets her keep a panther as a pet. I don't want that in my fucking house, but yeah, that's just me. Like, a cat's enough, let alone, like, a jungle cat. So Alice makes her debut in society really early in life because, of course, she doesn't have a mother. Her dad's probably trying to get rid of her. He's got other children to watch, etc., and uh, she doesn't really have that much in the way of schooling like a Jackie Kennedy type would. And in 1921, she found herself back in France after she had visited some aunts in Chicago. And she met Count Frederick, a writer and race car driver. After knowing each other for about three weeks, they married in Chicago. And this is unique for the time because where a lot of upper class Americans were trying to make advantageous matches with... Um, aristocracy back in Europe, she is the one who makes this path for herself. There's no one else saying, you're gonna go marry the Duke of Marlborough, you're gonna go marry Frau da-da-da. She says, okay, I found a count, we're getting married, period. After her and Frederick get married, one of her aunts gifts her an estate on Long Island. They spend two weeks there, and then they're like, now nah, we're out. We're gonna move to Paris permanently, and they live along the Champs-Élysées. They have two daughters in 1922 and 1924 who were largely raised in Normandy by Fred's sister. Because he takes custody when they get divorced. In 1925, the two met Errol and Idina in Paris, and they were the first to invite the pair to Kenya. And it was in Kenya where Alice began affairs with Errol, Raymond de Tratford, I think Dickie Pembroke also, and Fred and Ray and Alice have this crazy love triangle. And like we mentioned last time, there was once at a dinner where a nice dinner between friends devolved into a duel. So because of this scandal, and we'll talk about this right now, of Alice shooting Ray at the Garden Ord, Alice and Frey get divorced. And basically she never sees her kids again, like, and her kids don't take it, like, too personally, they just think that they have a glamorous mother who lives abroad and, like, only sees them once a year, but her trips back to Paris just become, like, more infrequent and more infrequent. On the morning of March 25th, 1927, Alice awoke in an agitated state in her Paris apartment. And according to later testimony from her maid, she had a feeling that something bad was going to happen that day. That afternoon, Alice and Raymond, they met and they had lunch and stuff. And he let her know that he was not going to marry her because a strict Catholic family was going to disinherit him. They went to a sporting goods store where Alice bought a pearl-handled revolver. And for some reason, Ray didn't think that this was strange. He said, oh, yeah, that's normal. Yeah, let's just buy a gun. So Alice buys this revolver, and they're saying goodbye on a train that afternoon where he's getting pulled out to London, and Alice takes the revolver from her purse, and she shoots Ray in the stomach and punctures his lung. 
He's in total critical condition, and then she turns the gun on herself and fires herself in the stomach. But apparently she really only grazes herself. Like, it doesn't take too long for her to recover. The conductor heard the shots and ran into the compartment where Alice said, I did it, before she passed out. And the Countess was under arrest. A lot of art, like, this is front page news across the world, and some of the headlines actually put the picture of her sister-in-law by Countess Phyllis Dejanzi on the front page, and she sues all those people and secures a bag. I wow, think that that, nice. that would be so funny. Can you imagine, like, your name is, pla- like, your face is plastered everywhere under a different name, and you're like, am I the Actually, drama? give me all the money. Yeah. Am I the problem? Like, yeah. But they got it wrong. It was the sister. Wow. Yeah, so Sister-in-law. I think that's, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. After a week in the hospital, Alice awoke and said that she shot him because she was trying to take her own life, and it was a pretty sudden thing. And we're taking this aside just to say that Alice is not beyond shooting her lover. That is why she is a suspect in the Errol case. And, you know, she was already having an affair with him. She already had, like, some crazy cuckoo for Cobo Puff tendencies. So it's not, like, too far out of the realm of possibility that she could have done this. On April 5th, she was charged with attempted murder, and on April 9th, Detrafford said, peace, I'm going to London via PJ, and declared um, to the French authorities that he did not want to take any action against her, but that he would come to Paris if he had to testify. Meanwhile, Alice was held in the Saint-Lazare prison, and her cell had also notoriously been used by Matahari. Ooh, she could be a good fatal fortune, but I feel like her story is really played out. I don't even think I know who that is, Al. Um, she's this Dutch lady who moved to Indonesia and then she learned how to dance and then she came back to Europe and she said, I'm appropriating all those dance moves. And then she was a spy and then she got executed. Wow. Mini episode. (laughs) Mini episode right there. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So she asked to be released on bail and she was on May 20th, and she then finally got tried on December 23rd, 1927, which I think is a weird day to start a trial. You guys are going to have a day of a trial. That means you're either going to settle it in that day, or you're going to be like, okay, start, and then you're going to take a Christmas recess. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense Everyone's saying, happy Christmas, Alice. (laughs) You're going to Don't go to jail. Yeah. So, like we said earlier, Raymond, he didn't want to press charges in the first place, but the trial continues. And Alice asked to be acquitted so as to not further the Dijonzi name. And if you could do, if you could argue that, like, what? You're like, no, 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 guys, don't convict me. I get that I did it, but don't convict me because I don't want to embarrass people. It's too late. They put your sister-in-law on the cover of everything. Don't you think she's embarrassed? Yeah, that's very embarrassing. So even though she was convicted, she was immediately released because they have this thing in France called the First Offenders Act. I bet they don't have that today. And on April 13th, 1929, she received a full presidential pardon so that even the fine that she had to pay in her conviction was returned to her by the court. Oh my God. And I'm like, wow. All that time and money just to walk in a big fucking circle. But great. Five years later, crazily enough, her and Detrafford actually got married, but by the time of Errol's death, they were divorced. Um, basically, they got on another train, and they are arguing about where they're going to go on their honeymoon. She goes to reach into her purse, Ray's like, oh my god, she's got another gun, I'm out. So they have one of, you know, the shortest marriages ever. Like, they don't even make it to the honeymoon. It just yeah, takes like a how, long time for them to get divorced. How do you marry someone who shot you? That's wild. 
I don't know. He had a, he had a good five years to just think about how much he loved this woman who shot him. Okay, now into our second suspect and the guy who I think is probably most likely to do it, but I can and will be standard corrected someday, I hope. So Jock did things over the next few hours that were super suspicious. Like like I said, everyone said that, oh, Jock got into a car crash, but I think it's pretty clear that Errol knows that it was a murder from, you know, the moment the sun comes up. He wakes up hungover. Wait, and... you mean Errol got in a car crash and Jock knows it was a murder? Yes. 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 That's what I meant to say. If I said otherwise, I gotcha. that's what I meant. That's what you meant. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> so first, he had been practicing, like doing target practice and shooting with Jack Soames, pink gin guy, earlier in January. Second, mm. he reported his thirty-two caliber pistol stolen two days before the murder. Third, when he returned from the mortuary, he lit a large bonfire with gym clothes in it, which was apparently something you never did. You never burned your clothes because you always handed them down. And then Broughton showed up to the funeral riddled with anxiety, freaking out because he thought that the funeral was half an hour later than it actually was. So he just shows up like everyone's already sitting there and he walks in like freaking out. Then to flee the pressure, uh, Diana and Jacques, they go on an eight-day safari right after the murder. And on one of those hunting days, he walks seven miles in the heat, which comes up later in the trial. These are all things that completely innocent people do. All of those things. I'd like to say right now, all of them can be explained. Getting rid of your gun, um, you know, leaving. Shooting with your bestie. Leaving the crime, like, to go (laughs) and walk by yourself. um, Because apparently he also had, like, booked passage to Ceylon, canceled it, and then the second Jock dies, rebooks it. Or Joss dies, rebooks it. Mm -hmm. So, because part of, like, the reason that they're... Part of how Jock, in my mind, gets exonerated, he's like, I'm a little old man. I can't walk two and a half miles. I couldn't do it. But, like, here, he clearly, right after the incident, walked seven miles in a day, so he definitely could have walked the five to the crossroads. Or he yeah. could have hidden in the back of the car when he dropped, when Errol dropped off Diana, gotten into the car, driven with him, knocked him out, shot him, walked back. Wasn't even hot then. It was, it was nighttime. Even hot. It was nighttime. But that brings us to the arrest. So people are drawing the pathways that we're drawing right now. And finally, on March 10th, 1941, Jock gets arrested for the murder of Lord Errol. And he was arrested around 6 p.m. when the magistrate came over, just tapped him on the shoulder and said, so we're arresting you for murder. And Jock says, you made a big mistake and asked for some whiskey. And, you know, the magistrate, he comes strapped with the flask. I totally... Don't think that that's how we arrest people for murder today. Like, you get your ass kicked when you get arrested. So that he just got a tap on the shoulder. I'm like, are you serious? I think that some people who are murderers, Kyle Rittenhouse, do get certain treatment depending Mm -hmm. on certain things about them. So, (laughs) yeah, like, I've I've heard people recently do a similar thing where like this person's just committed a violent act and they're like can we get some mcdonald's or something and the cops bring like oh man no wonder he got out of this without any issue from the beginning everyone was on his side and like there's no forensic evidence it's not like there could be overwhelming forensic evidence that points toward him having done it yeah so i'm like how'd you convict anyone of murder like before 1990 really good eyewitness testimony. Did you have to but do then your also, crimes in broad daylight? Yes. <laughs> if you wanted to get caught. 
I can ima- I can imagine how many other before 1990 wrongfully accused people because of eyewitness testimony really being the only thing Central and like Park circumstantial Five. and yeah circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Speaking of messy trials, this was one. This trial was yeah just all over the place. They didn't have any of their shit together to get this guy or to get anyone really. And as seen countless times before, the witness testimony was really all that they had relied on in determining who was guilty. So for things like forensics, technology just wasn't there. They didn't keep that crime scene neat, as we said. They couldn't get a full picture of events. And because of this, you know, boot prints being muddied, um, no eyewitnesses at the time of the actual event, just character-based, and... The foreman on the jury was Jock's barber. So, like, You would never put that person on the jury today. You'd I never know. It's like, that. how did they let this happen? But they could only find 12 other white people. And they were like, well, you know some of them. That one, that one. Yeah, how many other people did he possibly know? And he stands trial on the 26th of May. So That's fast. Yeah. it. They're trying to get this wrapped up, I guess, for him. The, uh... It's or it's a really quick ordeal, because as stated before, none of the evidence has any leg to stand on. But without a doubt, we know that the stuff that he did was really weird. Um, like you said, with the gun, going out to practice, leaving the entire yeah area, and going on that little walkabout. Um, and on the note of the gun being stolen, just like to say, totally not strange at all, totally normal. That this burglar that stole his gun didn't leave any tire tracks or boot prints. They're, yeah, that's totally an innocent innocent thing that could happen to anyone. Basically, so the final, like we were, oh, yeah, I think that this ties back to what we were saying earlier uh, about how it's 1941 and it's World War II. Everything's pretty up and down. It's basically impossible for Jock to get legal counsel. All of the amazing attorneys, like, you know, this is an English common law system, so all of the amazing attorneys, they're back in England, they're not going to make the journey, fuck that. Especially during wartime, we're not going to, you know, try and cross all of the Axis powers to go to Africa and defend you right now. So basically, Diana, she could actually fly airplanes and Mm -hmm. got in her airplane and flew to South Africa, where she found Jock, an attorney, because even though... She's, of course, you know, freaking out, scared shitless of this guy. He's still her husband. So what's going to happen to her if she now doesn't have her lover? What's going to happen to her if she has no husband, too? So she tries to, like, help him with his defense. She also shows up. People say, like, she's, like, wears fashion to the trial. Like, full Lady Gaga vibes. Oh, God. And, like, dresses as a widow. And it's, like, her husband's alive right there. I want to go see that. Yeah, I know. I figured. Up your alley. I really want to see that. We've got Diana Caldwell. She's got him, this attorney now. And the final nail in this coffin that gets him exonerated, or gets him exonerated, gets him cleared, is this bullet that they find. So Jocelyn's body was found on Jock's property. And even though Jock had a really clear reason for the murder, you know, he's with his wife, uh, they just found that the bullets didn't match. So one of them had, like, five marks in it, and the other one had six. So they said, I guess that settles it. He's innocent. Um, Couldn't have possibly gotten a different bullet or 
made another notch in it or yeah they were not handling this evidence well and whatever the reasoning was uh, that apparently convinced everyone that this one bullet couldn't have been from jock and so he was acquitted fully lucky bastard and also a lot of people did not like joss errol in the community Mm. and if they if they even have the foreman as jock's barber of course there's people on the jury who know of the victim's reputation and are like kind of deserved it if it wasn't going to be him it was going to be someone else that shot him because this guy was pretty consistent in his womanizing and wife swapping yeah absolutely and you know gambling addiction the end of this story is a is a long one we'll have to go over what happens to the happy valley set everyone involved in it but first i want to talk about like what happens with the actual land that they're in in kenya um because that's important it, it doesn't stay theirs forever it doesn't stay occupied by british people forever in 1947 there's a man named jomo kenyatta and he was the newly elected president of the kenya african union and he's surrounded by people who all agree that africans need a greater political voice after all Britain had colonized them for, at this point, 52 years, got them involved in the mess that was World War II by using their land as a base, um, and were rapidly, quote-unquote, modernizing society by building up these you know, large plantations for things like coffee. So Kenyatta visits the third largest city, Kisumu, in 1952, and meets up with Jaramogi Ajuma Oginga Odinga, and together... They pressure the British government to allow more African representation. So with that pressure, they get some more political seats. And in that same year, um, 1952, there's an event called the Mau Mau Uprising or Mau Mau Rebellion. It's got a couple other names, but Mau Mau was a group consisting of Kikuyu, Meru, and Embu people, also known as the Kenya Land Freedom Army. And together they fight the British army. And the local Kenya regiment, which were like the British officers that were there, the pro-British um, Kenyan officers that were there as well. And they used mostly guerrilla warfare. And as with many revolutions, they were aided by the women as well with food, supplies. So eventually this group effort does win. It takes a really long time, though, because this initial movement... Um, it, it eventually causes un- over 180 leaders to be arrested, including Shit. Kenyatta. Yeah, so it takes a, takes a while for independence to finally happen. And this only meant he became more of a symbol of African af- nationalism because he's imprisoned. And he's later released in 1959. After all of this, it is important to remember the thousands of people who died at the hands of the British during that uprising during the years that led to independence um, at the hands of British and pro-British Kenyans. But then in 1962, Kenyatta and Ngala, who was the leader of the Kenyan, uh, the Kenya African Democratic Union, formed a coalition, which eventually, a year later, in 1963, results in open elections, making Kenyatta the president of the country. Now, unfortunately, this independence... Um, does still have struggles after that year of 1963, uh, struggling against colonialism and capitalism. And it is unfortunate that Kenyatta, the new president, has his views kind of swerve after receiving power, which is something that we sometimes see 
with the influence of capitalism. Um, but at least at this point in 1963, most of the British people had left by that point. So there's a small silver lining for their ongoing struggle. And then what happens to the Happy Valley set? Lady Idina, who was Errol's first wife, her two sons that she had from her first marriage both die in World War II, which I think is really sad. Um, she married two more times after her divorce from Joss, and again, these marriages also ended for divorce. And her granddaughter wrote a book about her and her life, and it's called The Bolter. I don't think it's in print right now, but it sounds like a fun read. And she died in 1955 at the age of 62. Then, of course, my favorite person, maybe, from this story, Alice DeJonzi. She, in August of 1941, had been diagnosed with uterine cancer and had a full hysterectomy. In September, she tried to take her own life and marked all of her furniture that she wanted to, like, go to her friends. And she survived this attempt. But a week later, on September 28th, two days after her 42nd birthday, she shot herself in the chest with the same gun she had used against De Trafford all those years ago. And she left four suicide notes, one to each of her daughters, one to the police, and one to Dickie Pembroke. The rumor is, is that in her letter to police, she admitted to killing Errol, and the contents, though, have never been revealed. But Dickie himself had read the letter before he gave it to the police, and he said so. He said that that's what the letter said. Hmm. But by this time, I think the trial had closed, and they just didn't want to open that box of worms again. The coroner said that she wasn't insane at the time that she killed herself, so whatever her suicide notes say can presume not to be the ramblings of a lunatic. Which is why I totally think that I could later change my mind and be like, no, Alice totally did it. Yeah, that's very interesting that she had that written in it. You'd have to look at her gun, see how many marks the bullets have on that one. Right, like see what, maybe she used the same pearl-handled one that she took her own life with. Then we have Frederick DeJonzi, her first husband. They divorced, of course, right after the craziness at the Garden Nord. And in 1930, he married another American widow. Her name was Genevieve, and he died in 1933 of sepsis at the age of 37. So basically, Alice's daughters are um, orphans by the age of 20 and 18, respectively, wow. which is pretty sad. I don't know what I would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's already too late for us to be orphans at that age, but that sucks. So then you have Raymond de Trafford, um, you know, survived Alice trying to kill him. And after their divorce, he goes into hiding in Australia. In 1939, he kills somebody while committing a DUI, and he spends three years in prison for that. He declares bankruptcy, and he dies in 1951. And then we've got Jock Delves Broughton. Jock was never again accepted into the Happy Valley set after all of that trial. And just a year after it, he was alone because Diana left him. So he went to the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool and he took a bunch of morphine to kill himself. Could it have been guilt? Maybe. But his baronetcy is passed to his son, Sir Evelyn Delves Brown. I also saw something that said... Uh... He tried to blackmail Diana into being with him still, but she said, fuck that shit, and sent a letter to Scotland Yard saying, arrest him when he arrives. So he was like, I can't go through another trial. Mm -hmm. But it's very much a similar jewelry scheme to the one in the last episode that he did with the yeah. jewelry that was stolen from the car and stuff. And the painting's right off the wall. 
Yeah, how'd they get in? No tire tracks, no boot prints from the burglars. Oh, no, it's not in the basement. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. Well, a month after Jock kills himself, Diana remarries, um, and this time to another member of the set, Gilbert Coville. And they divorce in 1955, and he leaves her an estate with millions when he dies soon after. So then she's, you know, a serial, serial monogamist, as we've discussed. She finds love one last time with Lord Tom Delamere until he passes in 1979, and she dies in 1987 of a stroke and is buried at Lord Delamere's ranch in Kenya, about 100 miles north of Nairobi. And apparently she was such good friends with Kenyatta that people used to call her the White Queen of Africa. Oh my god. Yeah. Like, she had that much power. Wow. And I think that that's why today we can't find out so much about her, because she paid off so many people to not say anything about her shit, and to, like, keep their mouths shut. Yeah, it was tough to find anything on her, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm surprised she doesn't have a wiki page. No, nothing. Like, Lady Del's Broughton, Lady Delamere, she should have a Wikipedia page. And we got yeah. a little promo for our, our next episode, or our next mini-sode, on yep, Kiki our Preston. Next, yep, our next mini-sode is on Kiki Preston. She is someone that we mentioned in the last episode, another American heiress who was a part of the Happy Valley set. She's super crazy and cool, and I think we're going to make this a subscriber-only episode for the time being, but we'll definitely, maybe, actually, take that out. Definitely, maybe. Know. Definitely, maybe. <sighs> release it to the public someday because i it was very it was such a good episode to write that i just was like blah, blah, blah. yeah it just rolled right off the right off onto the keyboard but yeah guys thank you so much for listening to another episode of fatal fortunes um we have a lot more in store this season and remember on tuesdays we talk ghosts bye-bye Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to Fatal Fortunes and helping us get the word out about the podcast. If you want to help us further, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes, shoutouts, stickers, exclusives, and more. For just $3 a month, you can listen to episodes of Fatal Fortunes before nobody else can and get exclusive content that you won't see here. Go take a look over at patreon.com slash fatalfortunespodcast. All one word, again, that's patreon.com slash fatal forum slash fatal fortunes podcast.